Eric here. We're hard at work putting together the next episode of Reside. But in the meantime, here's something a little extra. Let's call it our first bonus pod. Recently, Kevin Thompson, the brand's chief marketing officer, who you heard on the last episode of the podcast, appeared on the CMO Moves podcast, and I wanted to share it with you. So without further ado, here's Kevin talking to host Nadine Dietz on CMO Moves. Enjoy. Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders, their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to CMO Moves. Today I have Kevin Thompson with me, who is the CMO of Sotheby's International Realty. Kevin, hi and welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. And I was hoping that we could start by you explaining a little bit about what Sotheby's International Realty is, and then let's talk about why you decided to take on your role as CMO. Sure. So Sotheby's International Realty is a global luxury real estate brand. We are associated with the Sotheby's Auction House, so we have a shared history and heritage with that 275-year-old iconic tastemaker. In 1976, the Auction House founded a, a real estate business, and in 2004, Realogy, formerly known as Sendent in 2004, uh, licensed the Sotheby's International Realty brand from the Auction House, and we have a very close relationship with the auction house and, and we partner with them on branding and marketing initiatives uh, throughout the year to the benefit of our agents around the world. We're in 72 countries with close to 23,000 agents. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's quite substantial. And I remember when we were chatting before, you were telling me that one of the Kickstarters on all this was a hundred year license agreement. Tell me what that was. <laughs> Right. So when Sendent was first uh, approached to to partner with the auction house, the initial agreement was a hundred year licensing agreement. And I know that those are those are unusual. I think in part the decision was made on the length of the relationship, in part because of the age of the auction house at the time. You know, the auction house is we just celebrated a few weeks ago the two hundred and seventy fifth anniversary, and so Sotheby's auction house is the definitive tastemaker when it comes to art, fine art, jewelry, cars, watches, luxury goods on a global scale. And I think the impetus was to find a partner that was going to be sort of long-term and, and be able to to build a business aligned with one that had been around literally for centuries. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, normally you think about long-range planning and it, people tend to think in terms of five or 10 years, but to have the foresight <laughs> for a 100-year license, I mean, uh, that is, that's pretty impressive. So yeah. And, and, you know, and I think part of that too, is that the Sotheby's brand and, and now the Sotheby's international realty brand are both so iconic in their space. Then the sense is, you know, much like the lux- I came from luxury retail, I worked with a number of luxury retail brands that have been around for a century or more. And so definitely the sense was, this is this is something that's not going anywhere anytime soon. This is, a, you know, a very, very long term play that the business owners were making. And I think it was a smart move. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you just mentioned that you have a lot of background with uh, luxury. And um uh, let's start there. Tell me a little bit about your path, okay. and then let's talk about why you decided to take this role on as CMO of this particular company. Sure. 
it's kind of an interesting story. I could never have imagined this is where I was going to land in terms of my career path or my career trajectory. I went to university to actually to study fine art and art history, but alongside that I was studying social geography, which is sort of, you know, the movement of people and how they move and where they move and why they do. Um, when I finished uh, university in Canada, in Ontario, I moved to British Columbia and I did my master's in education. So I went through the professional development program at Simon Fraser University to really work in education. And I started working for the Vancouver School Board very briefly and was recruited. I happened to be recruited by the New York City Board of Ed for a project that was funded by the Gates Foundation in 2000. There was a large financial gift from the Gates Foundation to the New York City Board of Ed. Um, but And they were given the charge to create this sort of semi-autonomous body that could go really searching for ideas for people who were trying to do things differently in the education space and thinking about messaging differently to come to New York and bring fresh ideas. And so I was very lucky to be recruited as part of that effort. I came to New York having never been here before and really spent the first four years in New York City working for the Vancouver School Board as part of this project. It was it was an exciting time for sure. It was a dramatic time. I moved to the city about three weeks before September 11th. So, of course, have a deeper emotional connection to the city as well as a result. So I, I and while I was working for the Board of Ed, I had this idea in the back of my mind. I had worked in, in retail. That's how I paid my way through school. I had worked in fashion. And I had this idea that when I came to New York City, I was going to see more for men in menswear than I did. I was a little underwhelmed, to be honest, in 2000. Um, you know, this was before sort of premium denim lines were really taking off and you had the, you know, these phenomenal menswear boutiques like Oak and Odin and all these great places in New York City now. There wasn't as much noise around menswear and, and I'd been lucky enough to teach overseas for a couple of semesters in Italy where, of course, I was just immersed in, you know, the, the incredible fashion that is part of the DNA of <laughs> the part of the Italian way of life. And I thought, I, what if I tried to bring that back to New York City? And so I set out on a, a almost two-year plan to write a business plan, find venture capital, find investors, invest every penny I had in this idea. And it, uh, I was lucky I got to open a small menswear boutique in Soho. So I made a shift. I left education to sort of go back to retail in a way. It was a business that I knew, but this time, you know, it was a very much sort of the buck stops here. I was, it was mine and I was responsible for all of it, the successes, the failures, and there were lots of both of those. But I had to learn how to do everything, how to negotiate the lease, how to talk to vendors, how to, you know, go on a buying trip, how to staff the store, everything, everything you could imagine. And I think that that experience, though, you know, the store itself was not successful. I managed to parlay that experience into an opportunity to work for Gucci America. And so that was sort of the dramatic shift for me to step into working in a luxury space for a brand that at the time was just celebrated. I think the year prior, they celebrated the 85th year of of Gucci since um, being founded by Gucci, Gucci or Gucci many, many years prior. And so I shifted gears. But interestingly, there were things that felt the same. You know, the when I came to New York City to work for the Board of Ed, we were trying to reinvent something. We were trying to change the messaging. We were trying to build more value into the experience for students. And, and I was working with high school students, specifically secondary school, to help them see more value or believe there was more value in showing up to school every day. So it was interesting to me when I sort of stepped back a little bit from, you know, edu- my role in education 
and having my own business, moving to Gucci. I joined the company just shortly after Tom Ford had departed. His last collection had just left the stores. The Ready to Wear business had taken a, a nosedive as a result. And they were trying to figure out a new way to message and connect with consumers. And so, again, the challenge was I moved from trying to convince high school students to show up in the morning to high school or trying to convince customers to come and visit my store when they'd never heard of me or any of the, the designers that I carried when I opened my boutique in Soho, or trying to get people to come back to Gucci when they had left feeling like, you know, sort of the cult of personality that was Tom Ford had departed. So there was an element, there was sort of this common thread being sewn throughout, but you wouldn't know that just looking at the surface. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So really exciting and, and interesting moves you made there. I'm just curious, what was the name of your boutique? Strut. Strut. Oh, I like that. Which okay. makes me kind of chuckle now. But I just thought, you know, I thought I wanted, I, I found four designers that were not, they weren't available in the U.S. anywhere, two Italian and two Canadian. And I thought, I want this to be exciting. I want, I wanted consumers to to walk into the space and have it change how they moved and how they felt about themselves. And, you know, again, sort of similar challenges over the course of the next 10 years for me. But that's that was the idea. Wow. I love it. That's actually, that's a great idea. Maybe, maybe you'll revisit it one day. Um, <laughs> I might, I might. <laughs> I hope you held on to the, the I'm, nos- I'm nostalgic. Yes. But it, but it was also, you know, it was also, that was the hardest thing I ever tried to do because I had to, I had to learn how to do all of it. And I think it, it, you know, that experience, I wouldn't, even though, like, as I mentioned, the, the store itself was not a success in the end, I wouldn't change the experience for anything because I had to, I had to learn how to do that. And I had to learn how to deal with failure as well and how to sort of resurrect myself after that. Well, it doesn't sound like you took long to resurrect uh, going from there to <laughs> Gucci. And then you made another move after Gucci. So tell me about that. Yeah, so I so I was at Gucci America. I was working for Daniela Vitale, who was the president of Gucci America, and Mark Lee was president of Gucci Worldwide. And Mark stepped back from the role. The rumors were that he was retiring, but we all had kind of a sense that maybe that wasn't necessarily true. And shortly thereafter, there was a sort of dramatic shift at the top of the organization, and Daniela Vitale stepped away from the CEO role as well. And actually, both Mark and Daniela moved to Barney's New York, and they took over reinventing that company, a company that, again, was also iconic, had been around for close to 90 years, certainly has you know a global presence in the luxury space, but is very iconically New York, has a relatively small footprint in terms of the number of stores. But it was a company that had been struggling for a while. In the heydays of the, the 80s and early 90s, Barney's New York was sort of, they built the reputation for that company based on really what I call the snob appeal of luxury. It was sort of the, if you think of like Dallas and Dynasty and sort of, you know, this the bragging rights that you sort of acquired by having luxury goods. And it was it was more about, it was, you know, that era was more about acquiring a volume of goods rather than connecting on sort of a, another level to either the quality of manufacture or the idea of handcrafted or tradition or anything like that. And so Barney's New York had sort of had, had in terms of the, the offering to consumers, had really kind of fallen from grace a little bit. Um, the stores were getting older. There was an opportunity to really go in and reinvent. And both Mark and Daniela were incredible people to work for. I learned just an extraordinary amount from both. Daniela has a way of recognizing what is most meaningful about the heritage and the, the tradition and the history of a brand, but also making sure that it is relevant to consumers today. And that is the biggest challenge, right? Because we're all playing, certainly as marketers, we're all we're all playing with time as a commodity. We're trying to get the most time in front of consumers and, and we're battling on, you know, on every conceivable device at every minute of the day. So, 
you know, I, I was there for five years. I was asked to really define what the customer experience means at Barney's New York and reinvent their training and their development and their onboarding programs so that employees were had the same understanding of the value of heritage and tradition, but also where this brand's need, brand needs to go and how it needs to be forward thinking and about the future. So this is fascinating. You definitely have a theme in your career. Um, as yeah, you- it seems like it, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I remember when we were talking about your move to Barney's and... Um, You'd mentioned a group. You said we really wanted to be relevant also to a new audience, the emerging affluent and millennials. Yes. And tell me a little bit about how you approach that, because I think everybody's struggling with that still today. Yeah, it's funny. I I, was, I said this a little while ago, and I was talking to a group of, of real estate agents, and I said, you know, I feel like I've been talking about millennials for so long that they should be older than they are. Um, <laughs> because really, the you know, the conversation about, for me, the conversation about millennials started when I was at Gucci, and I was at Gucci um, up until 2010. And again, you know, under Daniela's direction, and, and she said, we, you know, we have to find a way to connect with this emerging consumer because they're, the demographic itself is so large. Once the transfer of wealth begins to happen for this generation. And we know now that it's the largest intergenerational transfer of wealth ever, right? It's somewhere in the neighborhood of $24 trillion is going to change hands as emerging affluent millennials, parents and families begin to pass that wealth on to them. So, you know, the very forward-thinking approach at Gucci. How do we how do we begin to connect and build relationships with the, these individuals now, so that when they have the means to purchase goods from us, that we're the the go-to. That was the conversation at Barney's too. We thought we need to make sure that we have the very best of the best, the newest, the brightest. That was the core DNA of Barney's New York. When you go back to really the the you know several decades prior, when Barney's was really becoming the place for exclusive fashion in New York City, clients didn't go there because they thought they were going to see entire collections from, you know, from Calvin Klein or Isaac Mizrahi or whoever it was in the day. They went there because they knew that that the DNA of Barney's was to have the five best pieces from the collection. Or, you know, they were able to connect with designers and get them to do a handbag in a emerald croco rather than a calfskin and that it was exclusive to Barney's and you could only get it there. So there was this idea of Barney's New York as a singular place to find what is truly exceptional. And that is really what I've carried over to my approach at Sotheby's International Realty. Yeah, so so let's definitely go there, but I have to I have to chuckle for a moment because you're talking about these wonderful, exclusive, incredible goods and I keep thinking the number you said earlier, $24 trillion waterfall. $24 trillion, yeah. I would like to be underneath that waterfall. I have to admit, <laughs> I am not. And, and I don't even know if I could ever attain one of your top five goods. But, you know, wow, that is quite a waterfall. Yeah. Well, okay. and, and, you know, this the demographic itself, I mean, there are just so many people in this demographic that they're going to, and it's started to happen now, and it'll be this this wealth will, will transfer over the next sort of three to seven years or so. That's what most estimates are saying. And what that means is that this demographic is going to drive the global economy in every sector for decades to come because there are just so many of them and there's so much money that's going to change hands. Oh, I have a lot to aspire to. All right. Um, (laughs) Well, let's talk about Sotheby's now because outside of fashion, it's still luxury and we're in a fascinating part of Sotheby's. Um, Yeah. 
when the opportunity presented itself, I, I didn't know much about real estate, but I knew what I knew was that I really had a passion for crafting messaging in the luxury space and for helping to either build relevancy or restore relevancy if needed or create a better understanding of how to pull the levers when it comes to consumers making decisions about where to go to shop or dine or buy a home. I love the psychology of branding. I love what brands can do when they have a true sense of who they are and understand their reason for being. I think, you know, there, there are amazing examples of how brands can change the world. And I think the very best, uh, the best of the best have done so in, in remarkable and extraordinary ways. I mean, we have, you know, we have brands that are larger than countries now in terms of financial valuation. It's, ext- it's extraordinary. So when the opportunity came up to go to Sotheby's International Realty, I thought, you know, the one thing that I didn't want to do was have to go in and rebuild something because I had done that a few times. When I came to New York City, you know, the New York City Board of Ed, though still, you know, struggles on many fronts today, I think was is in a better situation now than it was. And I was part of a project to help restore faith in that system. When I built my own business, I had to convince people that it was viable and worth checking out. When I went to Gucci, Tom Ford had just left. We had to fix something. When I went to Barney's, we had to fix something. And when when I first sat with Philip White, our CEO at Sotheby's, international realty, I thought, well, this is amazing because you don't have to fix, you don't really have to fix anything here. This is a brand that has been doing the right thing for many, many years. Just to paint a picture, in 2004, Sotheby's International Realty managed about $4 billion in sales volume. And in 2018, we managed $112 billion in sales volume. So the growth trajectory has just been extraordinary, double-digit increases year over year over year. And I thought, this is a fun challenge then to come into something, a brand with incredible heritage, this rich, rich history, a brand that probably, you know, I and I believe this, I believe Sotheby's International Realty is the only real estate brand that consumers aspire to, right? I don't think it is a very real thing. And I've had consumers say this in focus groups we've done around the country that they want to live a Sotheby's or Sotheby's International Realty lifestyle. They want that. They have a sense of what that means. I don't think anyone says that about any other real estate brand in the industry. So I thought this is this is fantastic. I get to sort of come in and really step on the gas with an organization that's been doing very well for many years and see where I can take it. And that's that's a fun challenge. I love that. Stepping on the gas. And and a nice break for you, like you were like you were sharing just now, that you get to really step on the gas instead of fix something. So tell me what that meant for you. How did you approach the situation when you didn't have a problem to fix? Like how did you go into this role and say, how can I do what I just said, step on the gas. Yeah. So I think I didn't really have a problem to fix. You know, my, my predecessor had been there for uh, about a decade and, you know, we got to connect before I took on the role, which is fantastic. You don't often get the opportunity to do that. And I really came to understand that what I was stepping into was an an industry and I think probably the last global industry to really be disrupted by technology. I think every, you know, when you think of all the other big global industry, automotive, retail, they've all, they've all had their disruption. You know, the, the, the change that is happening now, the disruption that's happening now in the real estate industry felt very familiar to me. I thought, well, I, I recognize this from Gucci. You know, I was there 
there when when Amazon was exploding. I was there when we had to launch e-commerce, every, and everybody thought that online shopping was going to be the death of brick and mortar. And of course, it's not, and it hasn't been, and it won't be. But it changed the industry in really fundamental ways because consumer behavior changed, and that's changing now, right? Consumers don't they don't look forward to those listing catalogs that that used to arrive in the mail as their only way to preview homes for sale. They pick up their phone and they start the listing catalog is their is their smartphone now. How they connect with agents is different. The the degree to which the amount of time they spend connected with their agents has changed dramatically because they can be texting them and messaging them and sending them pictures and inspiration and ideas all day long, every day. So it has become and it is becoming more relationship focused. I think the power of a brand like ours in this space is getting amplified because of that shift in behavior. Um, so it felt, I thought this is the opportunity then. It's about taking a, a, a business that has been, we've been doing the same thing very well, uh, very successfully for many years now, and figuring out how to maximize the opportunity that the disruption is causing, because I think the disruption is a good thing. I think it needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm thinking through this and admittedly on the fly. So I may I may say something that's quite silly, but I'm wondering, I'm thinking about how people engage and use their mobile phones when they're shopping for everyday goods or luxury goods. And clearly the purchase frequency is much higher than if you're buying a home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and a lot of the digital efforts are are either geared to driving acquisition or improving customer experience or mm-hmm. shortening the purchase cycle for repeat buys. Like, well, what is your objective digitally other, yeah. other than brand awareness? Because you already have brand awareness. So what are you trying we to do? Yeah. So, so the brand awareness, I, so we actually tested this when I first joined the company. I thought I, I want to do a deep dive. I have a, um, a former colleague I've worked with for many years. I was at the Boston Consulting Group and I reached out and I said, I really, I want to dig in here and I want to find out what Sotheby's International Realty means to consumers, what they, how they connect to it, what they want from the brand, what they believe we can provide to them. Because you're right. I think you, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the purchase frequency, you know, a real estate agent is, is lucky, first of all, if they get to transact with someone more than once. And if they do, it's on average every five to seven years. So there's a huge gap of time between first and second purchase there. So what do we do in the, in the interim? How can we play as a brand in a way that cements the the second opportunity, right? So if they transact with us once, what can the brand do on behalf of the agent to make sure that the next time this individual is ready to purchase a home, to relocate if they're, to, or, you know, if they're, they're looking for a second home, a vacation home, a retirement home, what can we do to make sure that we are the automatic go-to when they start thinking about that? And there's lots of ways because people aspire to this Sotheby's International Realty lifestyle, this idea of living a Sotheby's International Realty life, we can have a great ongoing conversation with them. So, for example, we, um, as part of the, the BCG research we did and the focus groups, we understood that consumers wanted a very traditional print publication from Sotheby's International Realty. They didn't want a listing catalog because the listings are on their phone and they're more current, right? They can go to Zillow. If they're curious and they want that sort of entertainment factor, that's where they're going. We prefer they go to Sotheby'sInternationalRealty.com, but the curiosity factor is there and Zillow feeds that and has done that very well. If they're doing that there, what they wanted from us in print was 
this sense of what it means to live this lifestyle. So we can have very authentic conversations about wine and food and art and fashion and travel because of our, our brand association and the heritage and our shared history with the auction house. These are real things that we can talk about. I don't think other real estate brands can do that. I don't think they can they can genuinely have a conversation from a, a position of a voice of authority in those spaces, and we can. So we found out there was this, this hunger for that. So we launched a print publication. We built an entirely new infrastructure in order to do it, uh, one that didn't exist before. We actually took it to, we took the project to several publishers and they, um, two declined. One said, you know, this is, we don't know if we can do this, but we'd like to give it a shot. Um, <laughs> and they did. So we took it to the Wall Street Journal Barons Group, which is the Dow Jones Media Group, and they built a new publishing infrastructure that didn't exist before. And they've been phenomenal partners because they, you know, they recognize that this is the way the industry is changing and they wanted to do that exclusively with us. And that is, that's been a, an incredible relationship over the past uh, almost two years now. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so on point with some of the recent discussions I've been having with a number of chief marketing officers in the community around the evolution of content creation and yeah, shifting yeah. away from publications and even agencies into the hands of brands, but even more exciting into the hands of consumers, how consumers are creating their own content around your brands. I know we're, we're almost out of time, but I'm fascinated. I want to keep asking you more questions. <laughs> Let's just touch on social media for just a moment. How do you sure. think about social media with this elite group of consumers or potential group of elite consumers? So it, you know, it's a, it's a core part of our marketing plan and our strategy. We, again, because we have this content that consumers aspire to connect with, and I'll give you just a, a quick stat as, as a proof point. So when we looked at the, the data behind Sotheby's International Realty.com and we looked at demographics and who was visiting our website, we found that 65% of the people who visit Sotheby's International Realty.com globally are between the ages of 18 and 44, which was surprising to me. I would not have thought that. I would have thought that we absolutely skewed sort of on the higher end or older than that as our core demographic today, now, well, a year ago. And that wasn't the case. And so I thought this is really interesting because it means these consumers are already looking for us. They're looking for us in these spaces. And so we, we need to move very quickly to make sure that we're building meaningful relationships with them in these spaces. So, you know, there was a renewed emphasis on developing content, core branded collateral. We create a series of lifestyle short films associated with our marketing campaigns. We post them on our, our YouTube channel. We have more YouTube subscribers to Sotheby's International Realty than Zillow has to theirs because it's more than just a listing catalog, right? We put engaging content there. We want consumers, buyers and sellers and agents to rely on our brand as the voice of authority in all of these spheres. And so when we create the right content and we get it in front of the right people at the right time, they sign up. And so we've actually just, we were given the Silver Creator Award from YouTube uh, this time last year because we were grew our YouTube channel to organically, which is key, to over 100,000 subscribers. And we've actually just passed 200,000 in, in less than 12 months since that time. So it's just growing dramatically month over month. You know, we have phenomenal content on our Instagram channel, our Facebook. Facebook is the number one driver of traffic to our website. Um, wow. <clears throat> so, so these consumers, they're there now and that, you know, they've tapped into this idea of real estate as an entertainment platform. That's what's happening. When you look at sort of the bigger picture disruption of the entire industry, the change that's happening is that real estate is becoming 
entertainment. If you look at like HGTV, for example, going from the fifth biggest, 12th biggest to the fifth biggest network in just a few years, the meteoric rise of the sort of DIY uh, TV shows and people tuning in, the, you know, the love it or list it approach. And all. they're fascinated by what other people are doing with their homes. And so again, you know, we get to position ourselves as the voice of authority in that space. Wow. I love it. Okay. I could, I could keep talking to you all day about this because I'm just so fascinated. Unfortunately, though, we are all almost out of time. I want to uh, make sure that we hear from you. You've shared a lot of really great tips about what you were learning along the way. But if you had a couple of tips for marketers today, what would they be? I think the most important thing, and I, you know, I learned this, I learned this when I was at Gucci and I learned this from Daniela Vitale. That's when I got the opportunity to be involved in the first sort of in-depth research project around understanding the psychology of the brand that you work with. I think you have to do, you, you should be doing research all the time. You should be talking to consumers all the time. It's, it's never done. It's always changing. And you do that in order to understand the fundamental reason for being for your organization, right? So, so Sotheby's International Realty's reason for being is to provide consumers, buyers and sellers and agents with limitless visionary and transformative experiences. That's what we do. That's, that's why our company exists. You know, without doing the research, if you walked up to the average person on the street and said, why does Sotheby's International Realty exist? They would say, well, it's a real estate company, so they sell houses. But it is so much more than that. And you have to figure that out if you're really going to stay on the forefront and you're really going to compete effectively. I love that. I think we just came up with the title of your, your podcast is definitely going to have something <laughs> to do with brand psychology. I just love that. Okay. Well, my last question for you today is if, and this is actually funny. I asked this question at the end of every podcast and, and just the okay. fact that I'm going to say it to you in this way, when we've been talking about lots of money this whole time, the question is, if you take money and talent off the table, they are no longer in your way, what in the world would you be doing today? If I took money and talent, I think I would probably still be building things. I've always felt like I am am a builder. I like to go in and whether it's building new ideas or new approaches or road mapping, you know, new strategic imperatives or renovating my home. I was lucky enough to purchase my first home about five years ago and I moved out of New York City and I have spent five years renovating that home. And then I bought the house next door and I renovated that one. So I would be building something, whether, you know, on a computer or, or with my hands, that's what I would be doing. I can totally see that. Um, <laughs> and I will call you for advice the next time I try to take on one of those projects. No problem. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you and also get to know this exciting and wonderful industry that you're in. Excellent. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. A big thank you to Nadine and CMO Moves for having Kevin on their show and for letting us share. Be sure to check the show notes for links to subscribe to their podcast. And thanks as always for listening. Until next time.